0: Well, welcome to Trinity Church, and uh, we are starting our second uh, book of the Bible today. We've um, been uh, going through Colossians, took a break for Advent, and uh, then uh, celebrated Good Friday, Easter Sunday last week. And today we have the privilege of starting the book of Ruth. As I started studying, I was thinking, why are people drawn to this book? This is a favorite of many, one of uh, the most uh, read, studied Old Testament books. And and I wrote down just a few things about uh, this short story. Uh, First of all, it speaks to perseverance and a woman taking initiative in a Male Dominant Society it is also a love story forged in the midst of human suffering people identify with Naomi beaten down from famine exile grief loneliness uh they're very ordinary people in this book but in whom God is working and the the work of God in this book isn't explicitly mentioned As much as it is in uh, some books, but we can see over and over again that God is very active and at work. This is a a short story with a happy ever after ending, moving from famine and infertility to fullness and fertility. Different from maybe some of the other Old Testament stories with a lot of ups and downs. Take uh, David. Shepherd boy kills Goliath, becomes king. If things are going really well. He commits adultery, murders a guy in the process. Repents. Things go better. A very much a up and down type story. This one is um, has a, a very um, consistent, clear uh, trajectory. Um, the main characters here demonstrate virtues like a friendship, loyalty, sacrifice. This truly is a heartwarming story, charming, idyllic, and delightful. And it, it is all of those things. But as we study it, starting today and for the next few weeks, and we deeply understand the context of this book and its relation to the rest of scripture, I think we'll find that it's far more than just that. Uh, today, we're, we're going to focus on the first uh, five verses as uh, we gain the uh, context uh, from the book to aid us in that endeavor. Uh, if you didn't get a listening guide, you can raise your hand. DJ will bring one to you. Let's turn to Ruth and read the first 5 verses In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years And both Malan and Killian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Father God, I I pray that you would uh, speak to us today uh, through uh, this short story that uh, we would see Jesus and be changed by him through the work of your spirit. In his glorious name we pray. Amen. All right, to start off, we need to find our bearings. We've been in Colossians. If you have a physical Bible, you realize Colossians is a long ways away from Ruth. Maybe you just typed in R-U-T, and you're like, I don't know, it's, it's somewhere in there. But this is, uh, the setting of this book is over a thousand years before the arrival of Jesus. And you might be thinking, so what does... I mean, that puts it well over 3,000 years before our time here today. What does this have to do with us? Maybe Colossians? You know, it makes somewhat sense. You know, Paul is addressing a church. Yeah, 2,000 years difference, but we're a church here today in Crestwood, Kentucky. But what about Ruth? Long time before... Uh, Jesus arrives, and let's let's turn read a passage from the New Testament. Uh, To turn with me to Luke, end end of Luke after the resurrection we talked about last Sunday, Luke twenty four, verse thirteen. to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer These things and enter into his glory. And look at this verse here, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explained to them how the scriptures point to and concern him. We read the Old Testament differently than Jews still waiting for the Messiah. We believe the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. Not in a manufactured, corny way of finding Jesus behind the ears of grain in chapter 2 or um, some superficial things like that, but in a far more significant way of seeing this story point to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. So, back to Ruth, chapter one, the first verse says, in the days when the judges ruled, or literally the judges judged. So this is the time period during the period of the judges. And how do we in the Old Testament get to the judges? Well, let's just do a really quick Old Testament uh, recap, starting with Abraham. So Abraham, idol worshiper that God called to leave Ur and uh, move to Canaan. He he had his faults, um, had uh, some rough times because of his... uh, his sin but he did have faith demonstrated faith he um he, you know at God's command he was willing to even sacrifice his own son that God had miraculously provided him sacrifice his own son Isaac and then then we go to, from Isaac to Jacob and uh, through the work of uh, Joseph, uh, during a famine, uh, brought them to Egypt, uh, providing for the people. The people uh, keep growing exponentially in the next 400 years, but are in slavery in Egypt. And then God redeems his people out of Egypt through the work of Moses, uh, a uh, certainly a flawed leader, not, not not a great speaker, was afraid, but God raises him up to lead the people through God's strong hand of uh, if, you, if you remember all the the, the the plagues God brings to bring his people out, going through the Red Sea as He uh, guides his people to uh, the promised land, Moses, Uh, Sins isn't allowed to lead God's people into uh, that promised land, so God raises up uh, Joshua. uh, Who does lead them in? Uh, They mete out punishment for idolatry on the nations uh, living in uh, Canaan at the time. Uh, Under the leadership of Joshua, they uh, possess the promised land, but there, were, there was still work to be done. It's not like they had cleared everyone out. There were still uh, pockets of resistance in uh, Canaan, and uh, they still, the individual tribes had work to do in clearing those out. And the people at the end of the life of Joshua, they covenanted to forsake the of false gods and served the one true God. And that, that lasted through the rest of Joshua's life, lasted time of the elders who are with Joshua. Uh, but we'll see it didn't last too much longer than that. And they did not continue in uh, faith and repentance, which leads to the time of the judges. Uh, the book of Judges is a... Um, agglomeration, pattern of hero stories. There's this repetition of this pattern of Israelites do what is evil in the sight of God. God allows them to be conquered or oppressed. And then the people cry out to God and God raises up a judge, a deliverer. In the book of Judges, things Go from bad to worse. Even in how the judges are presented in the book, that uh, that, I mean, there's some good judges. There are some, even four of these are um, in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews, but but this is certainly not a good time for the the nation of Israel. And as you you go through the book of Judges, you see that these leaders were less and and less effective of leaders, that the people continue to do what is evil in the sight of God. They do not learn their lesson and remain faithful to uh, the God who keeps on delivering them, keeps on raising up leaders. And this apostasy led to moral chaos. And during this time is where we find the story of Ruth. This is a short story of the journey from Bethlehem and back. It's rooted in history, as we'll see here. These are real people. This isn't just a fairy tale. And the narrator carefully crafts it to present... Uh, the right details to the story. Uh, this, this belongs to the writings, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, our Bibles locate it uh, chronologically uh, after Judges, uh, before uh, 1 Samuel, in the middle of uh, what is the, the prophets. Uh, this is the only book in the Hebrew Bible named after a non Israelite, uh, a Moabite at that. But, but we'll see the crisis is really in Naomi's family. The date of this book uh, is difficult. It, it was written down at the earliest during the uh, time of uh, David's reign in Israel, but could be a couple centuries uh, after that. It was transmitted orally uh, before that. And we'll find we, we don't know anything about the author, very little information. Anything I would give you right now would be speculative. But it is, it's clear that Ruth isn't written just to give us the mere historical facts, that the narrator believed that Ruth applied to the people of his or her day, a couple hundred years at least later. And by extension, Ruth applies to our day. And Ruth is a glimmer of hope, pointing to a future descendant who will right Israel's wrongs. Uh, But it is also for the present that God is at work and there is a faithful remnant, both in the time that the narrator was writing this book for his or her audience, the people living during that, that day, and also for us. Today we're going to see the opening to Act 1, and we're introduced to the, the setting, the characters, the crisis uh, threatening uh, this family. And uh, let me uh, pull, up a, pull up a map here, if you wouldn't mind pulling up, just to, just to kind of give you a little context of, uh, from verse 1 as they go from uh, Bethlehem to Moab. Again, these are are real places. You see it on the other side of uh, the Dead Sea there. And and we'll see in these verses, we're just going to work our way through them. We'll see the downhill trajectory of the action in this passage. In uh, verses 1 through 2 again, let's read those again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So ironic part is there is a famine in Bethlehem. You might not, you know, for us as English readers, okay, there's a famine. There could be a famine anywhere. But Bethlehem literally is the house of bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. And it doesn't seem like the narrator it gives much of a comment on whether it was right or wrong for Elimelech and family to go uh, to Moab. But this is, at the very least, a questionable decision. For, for a guy whose name means, my God is king, he's moving into a land that worships an idol. Are you sure this is the best decision? for his wife, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, delightful, that they be moving into the land of enemies of God. I know it's a desperate situation, but, but really? And, and the language here echoes the language of the episodes in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, as uh, they move because of famine. And the, the word here you see at the uh, middle of verse one, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Leaves it open as to whether this is a temporary or permanent endeavor. Could be temporary just as Joseph saw uh, moving to Egypt as a temporary, he wanted his bones to be taken back to the promised land. Uh, but as, as we move through this passage today, well, we'll see that it gets longer and longer as the passage progresses. But the house of bread has no bread. This shows the messed up nature of the times of the judges and the setting of this book. How has the land flowing with milk and honey so quickly Come to have a famine. Is it because God isn't faithful to his promise? Is it because God can't provide the food? Is it because God isn't keeping his part of the bargain? No. famine is one of the covenant curses if Israel persists in disobedience and unfaithfulness to the Lord. In Deuteronomy, Moses institutes a ceremony where they would call out blessings from Mount Gerizim, and the curses uh, from Mount Ebal. Well, let let me read this uh, for us. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the works of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Verse 15, we see, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you, Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The story of the judges revealed that Israel wasn't too good at covenant faithfulness. Although they had been brought out of Egypt into the promised land, they had saw God's mighty hand at work. God had been abundantly patient with them. They had seen God's loving kindness in bringing them to this promised land, driving out the nations before them. And God certainly is long-suffering with a nation that continues to fall prey to serving other gods. It also reveals that God brings judgment, just like he brought judgment on the nations that were in Canaan that God drove out uh, by Joshua and his his men. God, God will bring judgment on his own people. He disciplines his people for idolatry. And here we have a famine in the land. Verse three, it gets worse. We see in verse three that there is no husband, that the family has escaped famine to run into the clutches of death. The, the story uh, changes a little bit here. It's no longer viewed through the eyes of Elimelech. The narrator frames the story So that we now see it through the eyes of Naomi. That the Elimelech's fate is stated in relation to Naomi. She has no husband anymore. The passage doesn't give any comment on why the tragic situation. But here we see Naomi in a country far away from God's blessings. And now she loses her husband And her sons lose their father. This is difficult in any time, but even more difficult in this culture, given the husband's role in leadership and provision for the family. Well, let's keep going. It gets even worse. Verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. So the sons will literally take a woman, means a Mary, Moabite, wives, Orpah, and Ruth. Concern here isn't who's marrying who, as uh, these sons will soon be out of the picture, as their names, get, get this, literally mean sickling and weakling. I don't know about naming conventions. Everyone says I like weird names, so I probably shouldn't speak on this, but those are those are kind of weird names, you know I, maybe maybe you want to you know take some notes for future children, but um, sickling and weakling could be their actual names. It also could be that the narrator slightly modifies their names, gives you know points of all a different way to uh, give them a little n- nickname, but that's what they function in this story as uh, they're going to soon uh, pass out of the picture. And uh, we'll, we'll see they next. Uh, uh, they're, they're not going to make it too long. The defining characteristic of the wives they take is that they were Moabites. And there's an ancient tradition that Ruth is the daughter of Eglon, a king of Moab. So there's, there's no comment in the text, but the audience surely knows what this means. This, this is not a good decision. There is a strict prohibition against intermarrying with foreigners and particularly Moabites. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation, None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor and Pether of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So they shouldn't be moving, really shouldn't be moving there. And certainly shouldn't be marrying Moabite wives. Moab descended from Lot's incestuous relationship with his uh, oldest daughters. Uh, The Targums, which is the Aramaic translation with explanation, they make this very clear that this, was not uh, something God condoned. This was in direct violation of the word of the Lord. You might, you might think, well, what's so bad about marrying a Moabite wife? We're not against you know, marrying different ethnicities today. Well, why has God got a big thing against this? And it, it is because it, God condemned it because he knew such marriages— would cause his people to worship other gods. For, for the Moabites, that was Chemosh. You, God doesn't prohibit us from marrying other ethnicities today, but he makes it clear that Christians shouldn't be missionary dating, shouldn't be marrying unbelievers. Why? Because that will often lead to Christians Worshipping the unbeliever's God. Things get worse. Verse 4. Uh, and then a verse, uh, end of verse 4 leading into ver- verse uh, 5. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Killian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Certainly premature deaths here of her two sons. Uh, No explicit comment in the text, but certainly a hint of judgment. First off, that they married Moabite wives. Not a good decision. Sinful. And then for 10 years, there was infertility in a family desperate for male heirs. That this isn't, in that day and age, given their family status and need for male heirs. This isn't, oh, you know, maybe we should wait five years or, you know, how about we wait a decade and get our careers going. They desperately need male heirs and um, neither of them produce it in the 10 years before it leads to ultimately their death, which their names foreshadowed. The narrator here doesn't uh, unpack the judgment uh, because these characters are really just uh, setting the situation for this uh, short story. The focus is on Naomi, and uh, she is left here without family, without means of living. In a word, she is empty. She's in a vulnerable financial and social situation without husband and son's. How is she going to get food? How is she going to have a roof over her head? Who's going to care for her in her old age? This is loneliness beyond just losing immediate family. She's in a foreign land, away from home, away from God's people. She has daughter-in-laws, but they're Moabites. And, And there's even a feeling that this isn't just a bad circumstance, but this is indeed judgment on her family. I can imagine she's asking questions like, why me? Where did this all go wrong? Why did I not stop my sons from? What is even the point in living anymore? So so what does this narrative in the first five verses of Act 1 teach us about God? Well, what does it teach us about us? And first of all, we see that God requires faith and obedience. It sounds simple like the children's song, Trust and Obey, but we know it isn't easy. What was wrong in Israel during the time of the judges? Well, let me take it straight from the book of Judges. This constant refrain of everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, faith and obedience are connected. Faith produces obedience to the Lord. It must produce the faith of doing what God says. If you believe what God says you will live in a way that reflects that belief. Uh, the other refrain in Judges is that there was there was not a king in Israel. In, in one sense this is a, an argument for what comes next in uh, Samuel of uh, the kingship of Saul, but ultimately David, a man after God's own heart who feared the Lord. Certainly things were better for the nation under a king like David. But ultimately, the people weren't submitting to God as their king. That's what it was designed to be. They struggled to live like he was their king. They continued to do what was wrong in the sight of God. And and that's why this story is set in a time that is far from the best of times. And, And this isn't too far from where we live, too. God still requires faith and obedience. We need to submit to Jesus as our king, living for his kingdom, His glory, following His orders. This is Christianity 101, but it is vitally important. It is simple, but certainly not easy. This story warns us to not forsake faith and obedience to Jesus our King. So so today, this week, as you go to community group, think about how is that going in my life? Submitting to the rule of Jesus. Am I combining faith with obedience? You may claim to be a Christian, claim to be part of God's people. Are you living like it? Are you cultivating your greatest desire to live under Jesus' rule and reign in all areas of your life? When you have sinned, are are you repenting and running to Jesus, your Savior, your King? That's what the people in the time of the judges should have done. They, They shouldn't have needed God to raise up a judge. When they did sin, they should have run to God and not away from Him. Second truth we see from these verses is that God remains sovereign. Uh, how do we like to think about God's sovereignty, God's complete control over all things? Maybe examples like, God caused me to leave work early and that caused me to miss the big wreck on 71. Maybe you know, God gave me this employment to prepare me for my next opportunity. God put the right person in my life at the right time to speak words I needed to hear that day. God provided money unexpectedly uh, to allow us to buy something we had only hoped of buying. Maybe God caused people to show up to our outreach that there's no human way they should have been there. And those are all good examples, powerful examples of God's sovereignty. But we say God's sovereignty is over all things. And in this passage, we see that God is sovereign over death. God is sovereign over leaving a person lonely and without the normal human means for sustenance and care. We see God's sovereignty in judgment, For sin. We see God's sovereignty in employing sin to work his purposes. And this is our sovereign God. Sovereign over all things. This isn't the type of sovereignty where you quickly understand what God is doing in all things. You may never fully understand So my question for you today is, do you view God's sovereignty as including the things in this passage? If not, your view of God's sovereign control over all things is defective. And do you delight in this God? This week, praise God for his sovereignty in situations you don't understand. And maybe even situations you're in that you wouldn't even wish on your worst enemy. God is in control of those situations to express your trust in him in those situations. He is working, just like he's working in the life of Naomi, in this passage, he is working in those situations too. He is sovereign in all things. Another truth we see from this passage is that God redeems brokenness. I'm not going to get into the full extent of what this redemption looks like. You'll have to stay tuned for the rest of the series of Ruth for the entire view of that. But we see numerous evidences of brokenness in this introduction. We see famine in the land In the house of bread has no bread. We see death upon death. We see poor, even sinful choices made by others. Loneliness, regret, wishing for a whole bunch of do-overs. Confusion as to you know, where, where did everything go wrong? How did my life end up in this place? And if that's you today, to one extent or another, you're in good company. You know, let's not minimize these evidences of brokenness. We lived in a very messed up world. A world that God is in the process of remaking and will eventually look a whole lot differently when Jesus, as the revelation reveals, wipes away every tear from the eyes of his people. There will be no more famine, no more... Loneliness, no more regret, no more sin, no more death. Would you come to the healer today in the midst of your brokenness? He can redeem your brokenness, just like he does here in the story of Naomi, a woman beaten down from the struggles in life. therapy won't ultimately fix your brokenness. More money won't do, a better job won't cut it, a fresh start in a new location isn't the answer. We desperately need Jesus. I desperately need Jesus, the Redeemer. He is the only hope for broken, messed up people like Naomi and like me. For one second, Uh, Think back to the Old Testament poster child of redemption. The story of God buying his people back from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. (coughs) See the hope that God gives to a hopeless people and can give to us. See how he can reverse Fortunes, Just like he reversed their fortunes, he can reverse ours too. How he can change this people like he did Moses. A coward, poor speaker, into a leader to lift up God's name, following God's command. But that redemption in the Exodus, under the leadership of Moses ultimately points to a greater redemption in Jesus. He delivers us from our sin and the tight grip Satan held on us. We desperately need Jesus, our Redeemer. Well, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are sovereign in all things. You are sovereign in our brokenness, in death, in loneliness, in mistakes, in sin, that you are sovereign over it all and that you are working. I pray for myself, I pray for all of us here today that we would run to You as the Redeemer, that we wouldn't attempt to try to fix our lives on our own, to deny the brokenness that is present there, but that we would cling to you in faith and obedience. God, we we desperately need Jesus our Redeemer. Please help us to cherish, to love Him more today as we see uh, Your work in, in even these first five verses in the book of Ruth. In His glorious name we pray. Amen.